Well, I want to begin this morning by, by just telling you something you already know. Right? America is the richest nation in the world. Maybe you didn't know that. Right? I, I trust that you, you did know that. Um, but do you know how rich our nation is? I looked up and looked some stats this week about how rich we are as a nation and, and found out that, that the ultra-rich in the world are predominantly Americans. Do you have any idea how many billionaires are there in the world? 50? 80? A little bit more than 80. A little bit more than 700. A little more than 1,000. A little more than 1,500. They're like uh, 2,600, um, 2,700 billionaires in the world. And you think about how many of them are in the United States. 27% of them are in the United States. The collective worth of the American billionaires makes up 37% of the world's billionaires. In other words, right, the bil- there are billionaires and there are billionaires and eight of the top ten billionaires are Americans. Just a land of opportunity is really what that's talking about. But the same is true of millionaires. How many millionaires do you think there are in the world? More than 2,700, by the way. (laughs) How many billionaires are in the world? A million. More than a million. Not quite 500 million. 56 million. But it makes sense, right? If there are 2,700 billionaires, right? A million is just a thousand less than there are about a thousand more of that. So there are 56 million people in the world whose assets all exceed a million dollars. That's everything that they own. One um, percent of the world's population are millionaires, by the way. Thirty-nine percent of the millionaires are in America, are Americans. Right, so so maybe American, right? You know, the, the top level is is very difficult to obtain. Fifty six million people, almost forty percent, are Americans, just pursuing the American dream. There's there's land of opportunity. Of all the wealth in the world, thirty one percent of that is held by Americans. So you just think the whole world, thirty one percent, and and what percentage? is America of the world's population? About 4%. So 4% of the world owns the wealth of about 30% of the whole world. Well, you say, well, that's just the ultra-millionaires. What, what about the average American? I just want to take the average income in America, and it's best not to take the average because right, those on the ultra-witch side, right, the billionaires and multimillionaires, they all just kind of bring the average way up. But the median is the best way to do it. Median household income, that is husband, husband, wife, whatever a household entails, means that um, about is $71,000 a year. Half of America owns more than, earns more than $71,000 a year, and half of America in households earn less than 71000 every year. Now, for us in Rockford, 71000 might seem like a lot. It's not a lot when you get to L.A. and New York and on the sides where expense cost of living is a lot more. But 71000 In comparison, the global medium household income, right? What, what, any ideas what that is? It's less than 71000 by the way. 
$9,000. So that means if you earn more, as a household now, if you earn more than $9,000, you earn more than half of the people in the world. That means right, that your median income is 71000 If you are just halfway, your income is eight times greater than the global medium. And your household income, by the way, at 71%, like, so where's the median, right? So if you earn $9,000, you're like halfway. Right? How about, what, what does 71000 mean? That means you're in the 92nd percentile of the whole world. So if you earn more than $71,000, you're part of the top 10% richest, wealthiest, in, by just income in the world. We live in a wealthy nation. And with such wealth comes temptations. Comes the temptation to trust your riches. Psalm 62, verse 10, If riches increased, set not your heart on them. The temptation for the, the wealthy is to trust in their wealth. And not in God. As, as Jesus said, right, it's only with difficulty that a rich person will enter the kingdom of heaven. And, and the reason for that is really simple, right? A rich person is everything that he or she needs here upon the earth. There, there's, there's no reason to look beyond this life to the next life because the life now is pretty not nice, right? They've got their best life now. Their life in the future won't be their best And if anything summarizes the anemic state of genuine faith in America, it's this. It is our wealth. It is our our riches. Americans don't think they need God because everything is pretty nice in the here and now. In fact, why do Americans need God if we've got everything here? God has obviously blessed our nation, but we as a nation seem to no longer need God. We've neglected Him even despite all the blessings He's given to us, systematically, just taking God out of the public forum, removing prayer from schools, taking down Ten Commandments from the the courtrooms, legalizing abortion, forsaking marriage, promoting immorality. Like like God has blessed us, we were founded on Christian principles. Not every, all the founders weren't Christians, but there was a lot in those early days, a lot of Christian influence, a lot of people calling upon the Lord. And we forgot him because we don't need him because we're pretty sufficient where we are. And God warned Israel of that happening to them. Remember when they were going into the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He says, I'm going to go into this land. It's going to be filled with brooks of water and springs and flowing with wheat and barley. And this land is going to eat bread without scarcity, he said. And you will lack nothing. And when that comes about... Deuteronomy 8, verse 11, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes will I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built houses and live in them, and when your herds, your flocks multiply, and your silver gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up, and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Right? Do you see what's happening? God blessed Israel greatly, and he says, when, when I bring you into that land, right, you're, you're going to have this wealth. You're going to have ease. You're going to have blessing I'm going to give upon your life. And at that moment, don't forget the Lord. It's kind of strange, right? How, how bringing God's blessing often is that very temptation to neglect the Lord. 
Well, this whole idea about becoming rich and then forgetting the Lord and not needing Him is exactly the case we'll see in Laodicea this morning. Right? It's found in Revelation chapter 3. I'm, I'm turning there in my Bible right now. You can turn there as well. This, this church was wealthy and had experienced the blessing of God. Yet, with all earthly blessings, they really had no need of a Lord. Now, for the past two months, we've been looking at the churches in Revelation. These are real letters written to real churches that existed in the days of the New Testament. We've looked at the first six of them as they, they went around on the mail route to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia. And this morning, now we get to Laodicea. The church in Laodicea was a, a wealthy church. It was a city that, that sat at the crossroads of, of several trading routes. People with their trades would kind of come right through um, Laodicea from several different directions. They, they, they became then this uh, manufacturing hub, th- this trade center, if you will. And the church in Laodicea's result was a wealthy church. Sadly, though, in their flourishing, the church, right, the professing Christians in the city had lost their way. They become proud and arrogant. They reflected what the city was. Um, the city of Laodicea had so many resources that when, when Laodicea was destroyed by an earthquake in A.D. 60, so earthquake comes in, destroys the city, all crumbled down, um, the Roman Empire came in and offered to help rebuild their city. And Laodicea was so wealthy, they said, no, we won't take the federal funds, thank you very much. We will rebuild it ourselves. Such was an indication of their wealth and their ability and their resources. And they did. Laodiceans were self-sufficient people, industrious, wealthy, independent. And that attitude then snuck into the church. And it sounds just like America. Americans are industrious. Americans are wealthy. Americans are independent. We solve problems. If you've ever been outside the nation, you've seen other nations, right? You, you see how industrious we are, how entrepreneurial we are. Much more than China or India. China and India, they just sort of follow along in the way. And, and, but America, right, there's opportunity. And we're like, we're like problem solvers. And we do that. It's like in our blood. And this attitude, right, finds its way into churches. And the message of the church at Laodicea couldn't be more timely for us, a church in the United States. For a church that has experienced very few financial problems because you're all wealthy and you're all generous and we've always had what we have needed. But here's a question we must ask ourselves, right? In, in all of our wealth, in our prosperity, do we need Jesus? Do you need Jesus? Do I need Jesus? The church, do we need Jesus? So the, the question, right? Do I, I live in such a way that I'm dependent upon Christ every hour, every day? That's how God calls us to live. My message this morning is entitled, Do You Need Jesus? Not from Revelation 3. I messed up. I didn't change that slide. It's Revelation 3, 14 through 22. It's the title of my message this morning. It seems like such a silly question, right? For those of us who, we are in church this morning. We, we sang, I surrender all. I give it all to Jesus. My Jesus, I love thee. I know, like, like for us, right? Are we, are we like that? And my question to you, are those mere words? Or, or, or do you really believe those? Have you really surrendered everything to Jesus? Do you really love Jesus more now than ever? Though you might say those sorts of things with your mouth, it may be this morning you 
think you really don't need Jesus because you've got everything you need. You've got a nice house, you've got a nice family, and you've got Netflix. They entertain your, way, your days, your hours, they fritter away. You've got your hobbies, and you don't really need Jesus. Well, that's what the church in Laodicea thought. So let's, let's read about this church. Revelation three fourteen following. Jesus dictating this to John. Remember, John was on the island of Patmos, dictating it to Jesus to tell to the Laodicean church. And to the church, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right? The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing, Jesus says, that you're wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold that's refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He was near. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, here's my first point this morning. Know who Jesus is. Do you need Jesus? Well, know who Jesus is. Like every letter, Jesus begins by describing himself. Verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Jesus begins by speaking about his words and how trustworthy they are. He says, I'm the words of the amen. Jesus calls himself the amen. Now, amen is what we say when we confirm the truthfulness of what has been said, Right? Preachers, right, sometimes have a, a more interactive congregation than I have in, in general, which is, which is okay. Um, but oftentimes, right, a preacher says something profound, maybe quotes Jesus and just says, Jesus is the light of the world. And the congregation says, Amen. Amen. Right? That kind of stirs me up. That's all right. right? The, uh, or Jesus, the preacher is like, oh, you must be born again. Amen. Right? Or, or, or Jesus says, right, Jesus, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Amen. Okay, you don't have to say any more after that, but you can, you can if you want. But what are you saying? You're saying, so be it. I agree. That is true. We get behind it. Say it on. Keep going. Amen are the words we sing at the end of many hymns. As if finishing the hymn, amen, we just say, yes, that is true. Jesus often used this word when wanting to emphasize some truth. He said, truly, truly. I mean, think about how many times it says in the Bible, right? Truly, truly, I say to you. Literally, he's saying, amen, amen. To Nicodemus, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the, the kingdom of God. He's saying, this is true. Truly, tr- this is amen. Like, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word... And believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he's passed from death to life. He's just saying, this is the gospel. Whoever hears my word believes in God. 
That everything about him is true. What he said about Jesus, right? You won't perish, but you'll have eternal life. You've passed from death to life. John 10, verse 7. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. He's the one that opens the door. He's the good shepherd who opens the door to his sheep. And over and over again, Jesus says, truly, truly, amen, amen. My words are true. They are faithful. He is the amen. And then he continues on basically saying the same thing. The words of the amen. The faithful and true witness. Same thing. He's faithful in what he says. He's the true witness. He's going to witness truth about what is right. You say, why does Jesus begin his letter to Laodicea this way? Because I believe he's going to say some hard things to those in Laodicea and maybe some hard things to us as well. And he wants to establish, first of all, his trustworthiness. Proverbs 27, verse 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And Jesus knows he's going to wound those in Laodicea, those who, who think one thing, but actually what they're thinking is wrong. He's going to kind of smack them a little bit and just say, no, you're not thinking right. But Jesus wants to say his words are coming from love. Look down at verse 19 even, right in the midst of it. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. That's what Jesus does in this letter. He's expressing his love to those in Laodicea by, by disciplining them and by reproving them, right? By pointing out what is true and telling them the error of their ways. And this morning, his words may come hard upon you, O rich America. No, they come from the faithful and true one who loves you and wants you to trust in him. Finally, Jesus identifies himself in verse 14 as the beginning of God's creation. Now, some, like Jehovah's Witnesses, will take this to mean that Jesus was the first thing created. Right? He was the beginning of the creation, right? There, before the creation, right? Jesus then first thing created and then the, the rest of creation. But that's not what Jesus means. He, he's the beginning like God is the beginning. In, in Revelation chapter 1, it's spoken of the Lord. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and was and is to come, is the Almighty. Right Here's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Like I'm, I'm everything. And at the end of Revelation, Revelation chapter 22, verse 13, Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the first and the last, the beginning and the end. That's the idea here, is that Jesus is, is everything. He's the, the source of everything. Everything ends with Him. It's all in Him. And that's why the NIV translates verse 14 with these words, the ruler of God's creation. Not just the beginning, but the ruler, right? The sovereign one, the, the supreme one, the beginning, the end, the one who holds it all together. Well, this is the one who speaks to the words to Laodicea. And you need to know who Jesus is. He's the faithful one. Second, you need to see who you are. Verses 15 and 16 describe those in Laodicea. He says, I know your works. But you're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, there are many who take these words to think that Jesus is speaking here about spiritual fervor. As if Jesus were telling those in Laodicea, right? Be fire, be on fire for the Lord. Burn with passion for Him. Be emotionally stirred by Him, right? Say your amens in church, right? Don't be lukewarm. Don't be tepid and blasé. But burn with that fire, that Jeremiah had, that fire in his bones. It just caused him to speak forth. Now, certainly that's true. God wants us to be on fire for him. He wants us to be passionate pursuing him. He calls us to love him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all our strength. He wants us to be all in with God. Everything about us. And certainly we should be fervent in that. 
And, and certainly even here, he, he commands them, verse 19, be zealous and repent, right? He, he wants our zeal to be there. And when it comes to Laodicea, the rich congregation, it's often those who are wealthy, who are cold in the Lord. Because they're easily distracted by their things and their, their leisure time. They spend it in their pleasures. And right, you spend so much time in your pleasures, you kind of squeeze out the time you have with the Lord and seeking the Lord. And that is so true of America, right? I've gone to foreign lands and ministered to pastors living in poverty. They don't have boats and cabins and cars and vacations and places to go to distract them. All they have is the Lord. They're devoted to the Lord. That's all they have. I was in jail a few weekends ago, ministered to those who are incarcerated. I've seen the zeal of those professing Christians. They aren't distracted by the worries of the world. They have hours and hours of time in their cell, which they don't have much to do. But they give much of that time to God, His Word, and prayer. And the question usually comes to us, are we just lukewarm? Has the wealth of our society turned our hearts away from the Lord? That, that's what was taking place in Laodicea. Now, one of the difficulties is this interpretation. I think there's, there's a lot of truth there. The problem with Laodicea is the words that Jesus said. He says in verse 15, I, I would that you were either cold or hot. In other words, right, he prefers, he's saying, I prefer you be cold in your faith rather than lukewarm. So I prefer you hot or cold. Like hot's good, cold's good, lukewarm's bad. And it's like, no, wait a minute. How can, how can he affirm that he prefers you to be cold in your faith? And some just say, well, it just makes his job as a judge easier. Like because if you're cold, you're just going to be cast off because you're obviously wrong. But it's those lukewarms that are difficult for him. God doesn't have problems judging, okay? He does not delight in coldness of heart. In verse 16, he says, right? It's lukewarmness I hate. He says, I can handle hot. I can handle cold. I like hot. I like cold. But I, I hate lukewarm so much, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. So you got to say, okay, so what, like, what, is, what does that mean? One commentator talking about the coldness, he says, it's inconceivable that Christ would wish people were spiritually cold, unsaved, and hostile to him. It's not, it's not right. Uh, it may be that Jesus understands hot and cold like we understand drinks, right? Hot drinks are good. What are some good hot drinks you like? Maybe you got some in your hand right now. Coffee. In a spill-proof mug, right, by the way, if you have it. Coffee. What else do you like? What? Hot cocoa. There's nothing better than being outside and going sledding, Cora, right? You're sledding down the hill and you're cold and you come in and mom's got that hot cocoa for you, right? Oh, there's nothing better than that, especially if they got a fire. That would be really nice. What other hot drinks? Hot tea, soothes your throat coming down. Any other hot drinks you like? Huh? I don't even know what that is. Spice, I know what hot, hot cider is. I was kind of looking for that, right? The cold drinks. Cold drinks are good. You like cold drinks? What are some cold drinks you like? Soda, especially on the rocks, right? I mean, in the refrigerator, cold. Cold Mountain Dew really is really good. What? Slushies, especially good, right? The ice in there, you get it from 7-Eleven, you put your straw in there, and it's just raw. What else do you like? Cold drink. Iced coffee. 
There we go. Others? Lemonade. Yes, especially with the ice in there. There's nothing better, Cora. Then when you're outside, you've been jumping on your trampoline, you come in, you're all hot and sweaty, and you come into the air conditioning and you take some cold lemonade, right? Speak the truth into your heart, right? Lukewarm drinks, though, they're awful. I'm not talking about room temperature, right? Room temperature is not so bad, especially with those with teeth, sen- teeth sensitivity, right? My, my wife's got that a little bit. So, but I'm talking about like the lukewarm, right? That, that that maybe is body temperature or maybe in a cup that's been sitting outside and is about, you know, the sun's been shining on it. It's like 95 degrees. So when you, you, you drink, it's like there's something in my mouth, but I'm not sure what's in my mouth. There's, it, ugh. you spit it out. That's what Jesus says. You're lukewarm, and you spit it out. Jesus might be talking about those kind of drinks. And they couldn't have ice back in those days, but they had cool springs that they could cool their water down with. But it may be many commentators even talk about the geography around Laodicea, that near Laodicea are two cities, just like seven miles away, Hierapolis, up, up to the north of Laodicea. It's famous for its hot springs, like Colorado hot springs. It's kind of like this really bubbly water, which is good for you, right? You, you get in it, and it kind of, who doesn't like a hot tub? That is glorious, right? Love hot tubs. Um, natural mineral water bubbles up, medicinal value perhaps for your skin, just soak in. That, that was Hierapolis up north. And then down southeast, less than 10 miles away, Colossae was there. It, was, it had a fresh spring water, tasty and refreshing. But the water in uh, Laodicea, nah, not so good. I remember when I was playing basketball we uh, had a game one time in Kiwani, and I'm not sure if this is true overall, but that water was absolutely horrid. So here we are playing basketball. I was playing for Knox College. We're playing basketball, and we're thirsty as all get out, and it was so bad that I chose not to drink than to drink that water. It was so bad. Maybe it's, I don't know, maybe it was just where that gym was, or maybe some, it was, it was bad water. Maybe Jesus is referring to these cities, right? Hot water is useful, like in Hierapolis. Cold water is good, like mountain springs of Colossae. But your water, Laodicea, it's lukewarm, it's ransom, it's repulsive, and I hate it, and it makes me vomit. In fact, that's literally the word used here in verse 16. I will spit you out of my mouth. No, I'm, I'm going to vomit you up. It, it is totally right for you to picture Jesus over the toilet, retching, at the repulsiveness of Laodicea. That's what he says. Oh, rich church of America. It's a stinging rebuke to those who are rich and have lost sight of their need of Jesus. He said, you don't need me. I don't need you. Nauseating attitude of the church in America. And there's any one word I think helps describe lukewarm water. It's this word useless. Like hot water soothes, whether it's in the hot springs or whether it's you're cold and you drink something hot. And cold water refreshes. But lukewarm water is useless. And too often those rich in this world are useless toward God. Oh, they may fund churches and missions and buildings and schools, and for that we are thankful. Right, for the many have given of their wealth, right, to further the kingdom of God, and that becomes great. But oftentimes, those who are rich think that they can just give and they're good. 
Well, look at, look at that building I built over there. And, and look at this that I did. And look at these endowments I have. And look at my names on the buildings, all in the name of Jesus. But yet they themselves and their lives are often useless. Because while they may give, they spend all their life on the pleasures. Because they can give and they can spend life on all their pleasures so easily. Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 and 19, As for the rich in this present age... Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. The rich are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves, a good foundation for the future. They may take hold of that which is truly life. How many rich people you know who are haughty and proud? Kind of goes along. They get everything they want because they have leverage with their riches. But he says, I want you to do good. Be rich in good works and also be generous and give, like ready to share. Like those are different things. Being good and, and, and good deeds are different than just giving. Giving like doesn't, it's not like God says, oh yeah, you gave a lot. Yeah, yeah, you're pretty good. No, but he wants us to be actively involved and engaged in people's lives. So what about you? Are you, are you useful for the kingdom? Are you like a cup of lukewarm water? Jesus will spit you out your mouth. Useful. They were useless. Well, also, they were clueless. Look at verse 17. Not only were they useless, they were clueless. For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. Right, and it's here that the wealth of the church in Laodicea really comes to the forefront. Those in Laodicea say, if I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. In a very real way, this is true, right? Their businesses were going well. They prospered in a way. Their, their, their trade status had made them wealthy. They could spend time in leisure. They had two amphitheaters in Laodicea, whereas Ephesus, that thriving metropolis, had only one amphitheater. They could spend their time in, in wealth and leisure. They said, I'm satisfied. I, I'm good. I need nothing. To them, you know, Jesus is a little bit like dessert after a filling meal. You ever been to a restaurant before and, and you order your course and it comes right and the plate's like this big and, and, you, and you barely try to eat it all and you're like, oh, you feel bloated and then the waitress comes along and says, well, any dessert for you guys? You're like, oh, no thanks, I can't get any dessert. Why are you kidding me, right? Chocolate cake, ice cream, anything. Oh my, like you can't even imagine the delicacies. That that tastes good, I'm so full, I can't fit in. Those in Laodicea said, I'm so full of everything in the world, I don't need anything, including you, Jesus. Don't need you. I got everything I got. And Jesus says, you're clueless. You have no self-awareness. You don't understand. He said, you may be rich in the worldly sense. Yes, but before me you were wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Five unflattering words. And these aren't the words that those in Laodicea would use to describe themselves. Right? If you ask someone in Laodicea, well, just tell me about yourself. Right? Just, just give me five words that, that uh, describe yourself. Well, I'm independent. Hardworking, industrious, 
self-sufficient, satisfied. I doubt they would have called themselves wretched. They were beautiful people, clean, not ugly and tormented in their spirit. I doubt they would have called themselves pitiable. They were envied, not pitied. They were not miserable like the, the dirty homeless man upon whom all of us look at with pity. I doubt they would have called themselves poor. <laughs> you say, that's not me. Just let's look at my bank account. Let's pull up my app, right? Pull it up uh, here. Uh, I don't think that's poor. They would not have called themselves blind. In fact, they saw the world in full color in all its glory in all it had to offer because they had the wealth and ability to do whatever they wanted. You realize that, that that's, I think, the thing that strikes me about wealth in America is that you can have or do almost anything you want. Now, there are some things that are outside. You, you can't do that. But if you want to travel anywhere in the world, you all can do that. You just save up a little bit. $10,000 trip, you can do that. If you want to take like one of these, like YouTube, I've seen it, uh, $10,000 trip across the Atlantic Ocean. If you want to take that plane flight for four hours, you can do it. You can save up for a year or two, get $10,000 and do that. There are people in this world, however, who cannot ever do that because it would take their whole lifetime and they cannot achieve enough finances to be able to do what they want to do. And these people saw the world in all their glory. You have the opportunity to see the world in all its glory. You can go anywhere you want. You want to go to Antarctica? You can probably get there. Might take you some time. Might take you some study. I'm not sure the permission to go to Antarctica, but probably if you want to go, you can go. You want to go explore some big caves someplace? You want to climb Mount Everest? It just takes some money. But it's within the reach of all of you. I doubt they would have called themselves naked. They weren't exposed without. They had everything. In fact, one of the things they had was a lot of uh, sheep, black sheep that they had. That their, their clothes were like always in black because it's just a sign of their wealth. These black wool that they had. The problem for those in Laodicea is that they were clueless. They were blind to the state of their souls. They didn't see who they were. What about you? Do you see who you are? Do you see where you are or have the riches of America blind your eye, blinded your eyes to the reality of your own soul? It's so important for you to see before the Lord that you as well are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked apart from Jesus Christ. It's the cleansing touch of Christ alone is who we are. We need Jesus. That's why my sermon is entitled, right? right? You need Jesus. You need him to escape those things. And so you say, how do I escape those things? Well, my point number three, buy what you need. Verses 18 and 19. Look at verse 18. He's a counsel. Okay, so you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked apart from the cross of Christ. I counsel you, verse 18, to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. In verse 18, Jesus begins to speak the language of those in Laodicea. They knew what it was to buy and sell. They'd grown wealthy through their trade. And Jesus says, okay, so here's some things you, you haven't bought that you need to buy. First of all, buy gold. I see advertisements sometimes that say buy gold. 
We can argue whether that's good strategy or not, but buy gold is what they say here. It is good strategy from Jesus. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. Isn't it interesting here that Jesus considers those in Laodicea to be poor? They need to buy gold that they might be rich. The opposite of Smyrna, chapter 2, verse 9. I know your poverty. He says, but you're rich. Those in Smyrna were, were poor on the outside, but rich on the inside. And these in Laodicea are rich on the outside, but they are, are poor. And they need to buy gold from Jesus. Or they might be rich. You might just say it this way. They might be rich indeed. Obviously, it's metaphorical, right? Jesus isn't telling them to purchase gold bars from him. He says, purchase from me the heavenly wealth which will never perish. You remember the parable that Jesus told of the man who was so wealthy that he had nowhere to store his crops in Luke chapter 12? So he, he tore down all his barns so he could build bigger barns so that he could, he could put everything up in there and, and that for many years he might retire, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And Jesus called him a fool because he would die that very night. And Jesus concludes the parable, Luke twelve twenty. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That's exactly who those in Laodicea were. They laid up treasures for themselves, but they were not rich toward God. And Jesus commands them to purchase with them the gold that will lead to the true riches. And the good news here is this. The gold doesn't cost anything. It's not like they're going to pull out their silver to buy their gold. It's not like a, a transfer. It is, it's, it's free. It's the spirit of Isaiah. Isaiah 55 verse 1. Come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He was no money. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear. Come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I'll make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. We can buy this pure gold from Jesus without cost. Metaphorical salvation, right? Just, just trust in Him. Believe in Him. Come to Him. Ask Him. And He'll give you that heavenly gold. Riches is within your grasp. Second, Jesus tells those in Laodicea to buy white garments. And the meaning of these garments clear when you see the purpose of them. In verse 18, He says this, right? I counsel you to buy from Me white garments. So that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And the clothes that Jesus is talking about here are not the garments you get from Kohl's or Old Navy or Men's Warehouse. They will never be able to cover your shame. Only the righteousness of Jesus will be able to cover the shame of your sin. The clothing here is just a picture of the gospel. Right? When we trust in Jesus, He cleanses us. And you can even view it like like it does here about this garment that He gives us that's that's righteous on the outside. It it covers our sin and our shame. So when God looks at us, He looks at us in terms of clothing this righteousness. We stand before the Lord pure and beautiful, not because of who we are, but because of the garments that He has given us. John Bunyan pictured that beautifully in Pilgrim's Progress, where once Christian was clothed in rags, but when he looked to the cross, He was given new and clean clothes. Raiment is what John Bunyan said. It's also illustrated in Zechariah chapter 3 where John Bunyan got his illustration. When Joshua the high priest stands before the Lord, he's wearing filthy garments, representative of sin. Because the angel says, remove the filthy garments from him. And then Zechariah 3 verse 4, he says, I've taken 
your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Just this clothing, taking away the, the old rags and giving these new, pure, shiny garments. It's a picture of the gospel. The Lord clothes us in this way, right? So we go in to rent our tuxedo, and we got a t-shirt and shorts on, and maybe they're ripped a little bit. Maybe they got paint stains on them. We go into men's warehouse and does this all up, measures all up, and you walk out there wearing a tuxedo, the finest of what you can. And that's what God does. He takes away our filthy garments, gives us pure vestments. And these pure vestments, Zechariah 3, are, are like the, what the priest wears. In order to come into God's presence, he just needs to, to wear these priestly pure vestments like Aaron was clothed with on that great inauguration day, that we might stand holy before the Lord, pure and holy, and we are. So we trust in Christ given these pure clothes that hides the shame of our nakedness. Third thing Jesus tells him to buy is eye salve. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. When Jesus mentioned this, it would have been a slap in their face. No, buy eye salve from me because they had a medical center in Laodicea that was famous for their eye salve. Somehow they'd figured out in those days how to create this fluid with the right pH level. Right? So like for us, we just pull out, right? put eye drops in our eyes. You ever tried to do that with water? Just put water in your eyes? It stings like all crazy, right? Because of the pH level. And somehow they'd figured out, get the pH level right, just like our saline solution, like our eye drops. But somehow it was cleansing and helpful to people with they had eye problems, right? To come and, and they come from far and wide to, get, wide to get this eye salve. And Jesus says, no, no, you produce this stuff? Buy it from me. And of course, again, he's speaking metaphorically, not physically. He's speaking about the, the salve that comes and opens the eyes of our heart. In verse 17, he said that they were blind, that blind to the spiritual realities of Christ's saving work, so focused upon their riches that they've been blinded by their stuff. But they need this eye salve so they can see. That's why my second point is this, right? See who you are, right? You need to see clearly not only who you are, but you also need to see clearly who Jesus is. I want you to just, whatever, imagine your mind say a picture of Jesus or a picture of the cross, maybe even right here, right? You're, you're looking at Jesus. You're looking, you're looking at the cross that we have here. And I want for you to picture all the stuff you own, right? Just metaphorically, right? Take it, take it out of your house, right? If you've got a couch, pick it up with one hand on the leg, right? Pick it up and, and put your couch here and you and you've and you got your TV here, and you've you got your bed here, and your entertainment center here, and your stereo here, and then you put your boat here, and then you start piling all this stuff that you, you got. What, what's going to happen to your view of the cross? So much stuff, and the more you have, it may even obscure the picture of the cross because you've got so much stuff that's stacked in front of it, you can't even see the cross. But this eye salve that Jesus gives makes all that stuff transparent so you can see beyond that to the true realities of Christ. That's what you need, the eye salve, so you can, you can see. So you can understand Jesus through all your stuff. It's interesting here, right? To lay it to see, it doesn't say sell it all, get rid of it. Right? The, the admonition of Scripture isn't, no, don't be rich because that's really bad. You give it to someone else. You, if, you, like, if you're rich, you got all this, and I give it to someone else, then they got the problem. That's, like, that's not how it deals with. He's saying, use it for God's kingdom. Make sure it doesn't have you. Use it rightly. It's dangerous. You might set your hope upon it. 
Then verse 19 says, here's what you need to do, right? If, if the riches you have are so clouding what you have, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. If the world and your riches have become dominant in your life, I just call you to repent. And all you got to do is say, how much time do I spend in my world and my riches, and how much time do I spend with God and serving Him? It's a good, it's a good measure. I mean, there's obviously lots you have to do in the world, whether it's time at your work, whether it's cleaning, whether it's doing, but the more stuff you have, the more it's going to suck you away into all those sorts of things. The parable of the sower and the seed, the seed that falls in the thorns, grows up, but it's choked out. You know what chokes it out? The cares of the world, because you got so much stuff, and the deceitfulness of riches, right? And, and the potential growth, whatever growth that the seed had, it proves unfruitful, because of all that it had, all the stuff then snuffs it out. And the stuff, the snares, the riches of the world doesn't just even have to be stuff. You can live like Marie Kondo and yet have so much trust in all the stuff you have in your bank too. Right? It's just the, the riches of what we have. So I just say, seek the Lord, be zealous for Him. Be hot, be cold, right? Be refreshing, be useful. Don't be clueless. Okay, final point here this morning. Open when He calls. Here's the good news is that Jesus is patient. He is calling. He is, in verse 20, it says he's knocking. Look at verse 20. It says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The picture here is of Jesus. He's knocking. And he's saying what? Hey, anybody home? You, you, you rich church, you guys in there? Maybe he's knocking on the door of this mansion, and maybe they're so far back enjoying their swimming pool way out back that they can't hear Jesus knocking at the door. But he's knocking. He knocks at every heart. And he says, if you, if you hear him, he just merely open that door. He's going to come in, eat with you, and you with him. Now, it's interesting, this is often used in evangelistic call. To those who don't know Christ, right? Jesus knocking the door, just open up to come into him. That's certainly true, right? It, it can be used in evangelistic call. Right? Here's Jesus. He's, you're living your own life, but open the door to him. That's certainly true, but you got to realize this is a call to a church. The church once had Jesus in their house. They once had him in, but what's happened? He's been kicked out. He's been shut out. He's been marginalized. I mean, here's a, a, a church set up. Somehow the gospel came to Laodicea, Laodicea. In fact, maybe if you read at the end of Colossians, Paul talks about this letter also that he wrote to the church in Laodicea. Colossians chapter 4, verse 16. Have, have it read there. It could have been Colossians read there. It could have been some other letter. Right? There was this church in Laodicea. People had believed in Jesus, but now he'd been kicked out. But now he's coming back. He's just saying, listen, can I... Can I be in your church again? Or the riches, are, are you guys so proud and so arrogant, self-sufficient, you don't even need me anymore? It's, it's been said often, you know, what, what if the Holy Spirit just left the church? Just left the earth? Would the church even notice? Would we notice the lack of the presence of the Spirit? Or are we just so used to doing things on our own that the Spirit could leave and... We carry on. How much of our ministry 
can be carried on without the Spirit's help? Or how much of our ministry is really dependent upon the Spirit to move? You ever been in those times? Say some meeting, some evangelistic opportunity where you just, God, I need you to move. I just need you. We, we need you now. God, I, I can't do it on my own. I'm just trusting you. You ever been in those situations? I know as a pastor, I often am. Praying some evangelistic time. Praying for some ministry time. Praying for people to show up. God, it's got to be you who, who bring this and do it and stir. How much do we as a church, we just kind of do what we do? That's a call of Laodicea is to say, hey, let's have Jesus do his work in building his church. Let's invite him in and let's have him be doing a work in our church. And he says he's going to come in and eat. The idea there is deep fellowship that Jesus will commune with us in a deep way. What a great opportunity. And all it takes is us just open the door. An O word is easy. As it's like to say, okay, guys, hey, Jesus right here. Come on in. Come on in. You're in. That's good. All right. Now we carry on our own way, right? We might just marginalize them again. It's like, we got to keep that door open. Keep them coming. Keep depending upon him and his spirit. All right, then we get some wild verses here in verse 21. The one who conquers, the one who, in this context, right, repents, opens a door, is zealous for God. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. (laughs) This is crazy stuff. So Jesus, right, has been magnified and glorified in heaven. Where is he sitting right now? Psalm 110, he's seated where? At the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high, right? And we're going to see in chapter 5, say like verse 12, uh, verse 13, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, right? There's, there's God the Father sits on the throne and, and to the Lamb who's right next to him. And we're going to see this throne room scene we're going to get to next week. We're going to start that. And, and there's Jesus, right? they got two thrones. And yet this one almost seems like there's one throne. He says, I conquered and I sat down with my Father on his throne. So like, is, is Jesus like sitting on the Father's lap? Or are there like a dual seat throne, or how's that working? And I think it's apocalyptic literature, right? So even Jesus ascending to the right hand of the throne of God, that's how we're to think about it. Is that really the reality? Somehow, God the Father is there. Jesus, even 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty, gives the kingdom to the Lord, and that, that God might be all in all, but Jesus is there somehow within submission of Father and Sonhood, and yet here they are, are seemingly equal on the throne together, and for us, what's the promise? That we get to sit on the throne with the Father and the Son. Like, what does that even mean? I mean, we're so ingrained, rightly so, that, and chapter 4, right? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who is and was and is to come. That God is the one who's high and exalted. And, and Isaiah before him is ruined and undone. Totally right. And yet, here's this other manifestation about we are so one with Jesus, right? It says in 1 John 3, verse 2, 
When he appears, we will see him and we will be like him because we'll see him as he is. And like him, like sitting with him. Like, do we sit on Jesus' lap and Jesus is sitting on the Father's lap? Are we up there? Are we reigning? Like, again, right? That's the picture we're to think of. It's probably not quite reality, but it shows that in glory there's some power that, that we will have that will be bestowed on us, that we will be with Jesus. Romans chapter 8 speaks about how we are co-heirs with Jesus. What Jesus inherits, he inherits the kingdom, but we, as a fellow brother, right, we inherit that too. It's like, somehow, and we get, we get a hint of that. Um, we're going to see that in a couple of weeks. Chapter 5, verse 9, they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Talking to Jesus, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. And there's this aspect where believers in Jesus will be given authority to rule and to reign. Not because we're wealthy on the earth, but because we've been rich toward God. Because we as America have used our wealth for His kingdom and we have ourselves given ourselves to Christ and His Word and His Gospel to make that everything. And we can sit and rule and reign with the Father in eternity. How that works out, I don't know. And we're going to see a lot of this in Revelation. We go through this like, whoa! I have no idea what that means. But let's just embrace the mystery. Like there's this, this aspect of reigning with God. So what's better, reigning with God, right? Or your vacation in the Bahamas? What, what's one more, right? Reigning for God or some high-flying adventure over in Europe someplace, right? I mean, the, God has given us creation to be good and enjoyed, right? First Timothy 4, right? I'm not, I'm not saying yet, yeah, don't give it all. You don't have to give it all away, right? But, but are you rich toward God with the things that you have? And and, and is God your high priority? And is, is he where your love is? And are you useful for his kingdom? Or are you clueless? Thinking, oh, look, I got so much rich, I don't need him. And then we close, verse 22. He was near, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And, and this has been the wrap-up of every letter. And I think now as we finish the church of Revelation, be good wrap-up for all the letters. Think about the message of Ephesus. If you know the song, right? Tell Ephesus what? You've lost your first love. At Rock Valley Bible Church, we've become so theologically discerning that we've lost our love for Christ and for God and for others and for the world. Or tell Smyrna to be what? Faithful unto death. Have we become right, just so, so wanting our lives and protecting our lives? Or we come, are, are we willing to die? Are we willing to lay our lives down for Christ, for that crown of righteousness which we'll get? Tell Pergamon to what? Forsake Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Tell Thyatira what? Forsake the immorality of Jezebel. Just false teaching, right? Have we embraced false teaching? Have we embraced the wrong ideas? Are we letting false teaching, wrong living, immorality come into the church? Jesus says, no, you keep that out of the church. There's no place for that among professing faithful believers of God. Thyatira. Sardis. What's the message there? Tell Sardis. You're dead. Are we dead or are we living as a church? 
Are, are, are we growing? Are we outreaching? Are, are we going out? Are we, are we trusting in God? Are we, are we growing in our Bible reading? Are we growing in our prayer? Are we growing in our relationship with Him? Or are we just going through the motions or dying on the vine? Tell Philadelphia, I, I'll protect you. Right? Keep my word. I'm going to protect you through the trial and tribulation that's coming. I'm not going to take you out of that. I'm going to protect you through that, is what he says. And hear the message to Laodicea. Are you lukewarm? Do you need Jesus? And, and I find it interesting, these churches, though written you know, 2,000 years ago, are so applicable to all churches today. Not because, right, these are, just, these are sample churches of what was taking place in the, the first century. And by the way, first century church, which wasn't this great magical church, there were problems in the first century church. There are problems in the American church today. There are problems in the worldwide church today. Just embrace it. Jesus is somehow doing his, his work, his messy work through the church. Just trust in that. But there's so many things and admonitions for us to church to really look. Where, where do we see ourselves here in Revelation 2 and 3? How, how do we need to repent and how do we need to conform so that God looks upon us with a smile? That will keep us and protect us even if it means our death. Right? It means here in Laodicea, right? Dealing with our riches as Americans in a right way. I just end with this. Psalm 67 is the missionary psalm. God, be gracious to us and bless us and cause your face to shine upon us that your ways may be known on the earth, your salvation to all the nations. So as God blesses us, he doesn't want to bless us so we use it on us. He wants to bless us so that we can use it strategically for the salvation of the nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. So we use what we have to stir and be empowered to enjoy the grace of God so we might extend his glory. That's how it all fits together. Well, I'm excited to go to heaven next week. We look next week at chapter 4. But let's pray. Father, I, I pray that you might help us even here with this church in Laodicea who is rich and self-content and has everything, and yet really they lacked much. They're wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. And, and I pray, God, you would stir us afresh and stir us in our hearts. As John Newton said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a, a wretch like me. God, that you looked upon us as pitiable people and you had pity upon us. So we just simply turned and looked to Christ. God, I, I pray that we would open that door. That door would be wide open to Jesus living and dwelling among us. He would not remove the lampstand from us as he did threatened in Ephesus. That he would not be unhappy with us in any way. God, but that we would see the particular areas of these churches and conform ourselves to them. God, that we might be pleasing to you and that you would work in our church and that you on that final day would find us to be conquerors. We're the ones who overcame and that we might receive then all the blessings that come with that. This is for our good, oh God. I thank you that you reprove those whom you love. May God, we be zealous and repent. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.